0: Um, oh, but yeah. Well,
1: I don't know. The uh, one thing that I have been really uh, excited to be following is the the march to free Leonard Peltier. That is, I one of the longest walks that I have I, that I've heard of in like the history of of me being alive and people doing <laughs> long walks to Washington D.C. is uh, uh, eleven hundred and three miles from Minneapolis to Washington D.C.
2: That's f- that's a hundred and three miles further than the proclaimers felt ready to walk when they <laughs> sang their famous song.
0: <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I mean, I, I when I first heard about that, they're like, "We're going to do a freedom march." I was like, "Oh, that's cool." To D.C. from Minneapolis, I was like, "Oh, damn, that's some commitment right yeah. there." That which is good. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, the whole story and and so I wrote up a little bit of background. So for folks who are listening, who don't know the story about Leonard Peltier, um, which I definitely, there's a ton of great media you can find out about it. It's an incredible story. Um, uh, you know, a, yet another dark chapter in U.S. history because, so like... That persists to today. Yeah. I mean, Leonard Peltier is one of the United States' longest-serving political prisoners. He's been in jail for almost 50 years Uh and he was originally imprisoned on false charges stemming from an FBI siege of a uh, compound uh, run by the American Indian Movement on the Pine Ridge Reservation in 1975. And, like, even the guy who prosecuted the case against Leonard Peltier has lobbied for him to be released. Like... No one except like the hardest like right wing, you know, like cops and and FBI people and politicians thinks Leonard Peltier should be in jail. And yet, despite all that, he still is. And so that's why you have this movement, this freedom march that is now that just started uh, a few days ago, going all the way from Minneapolis to D.C., and so i i mean that's really inspirational and part of it is that there's a real urgency here cuz i mean since leonard peltier has been in prison for 46 years he's getting you know he's getting pretty old and it's pretty tough to survive in jail when you're young and healthy yeah much yeah. less when you're an in elder COVID. yeah and no. that's the thing it's like they keep they keep prisoners especially political prisoners in absolutely horrific conditions you know solitary confinement but then also when you have an opportunity to be around other people they don't give you the protections you need to keep yourself safe from covid so mm-hmm. i mean uh, he's had several like different health ailments as well as getting covid because they wouldn't give him his booster shot like at the right timing and so like it's his continued imprisonment is not only uh, a political crime, which of course it is, but it's it's also you know it, they are trying to kill him in prison, and so oh, yeah like it's really important that we support these movements to free him and, and really all the political prisoners. so I saw yeah. you have a list here, Lena, of all the places that the march is going to be going through.
1: Right, yeah. I mean, uh, yesterday they had uh, gone through Eau Claire. I mean, it's the 6th, so it was the 5th that they were going through Eau Claire, Wisconsin. On the 17th of this month, September, uh, they'll be in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, The 24th will be in Chicago, Illinois. On October 1st, they'll be in South Bend, Indiana. October 11th, Toledo, Ohio. October 19th, Cleveland, Ohio. October 28th, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And then on November fourteenth, they'll be in Washington D.C. itself to march on Washington. And um, I, I just wanted to make sure to put all those those dates out there so that you can look it up. I mean, like they have like a Facebook event page, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I'm sure they're on other social media to to like actually get the information out there as to how to participate, how the events on those days uh, happen. But I highly encourage people to to show up to these events. And, uh, I mean, I was noticing that there's a, a, a decent gap between uh, Chicago and South Bend when it comes to dates. So I'm guessing they're going to be maybe spending a couple days kind of meandering through Chicago or something like that. Uh, but, so, I mean, keep keep an eye out for that because, you know, showing solidarity... With our indigenous, you know, family is is really important, and uh, you know, is 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 essential to the fight that we have also as workers.
2: Yeah, and yeah. they are definitely going to need some support. I mean, I think some of the reasons uh, there's plenty of days between relatively close together locations is because between a lot of these stops there aren't really. Uh, paths that are designed for walking right there's really just like a lot of roads i mean i know from pittsburgh to dc there's pretty much a straight shot where you don't have to walk along the road at all there's like a giant bike trail that goes across the entirety of pennsylvania but uh, the midwest is not friendly to walking long distances so making it from minneapolis like through ohio is going to be a pretty huge feat for these folks and, and i think just shows you know the level of commitment that they have to this cause
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. And they've said, like, you know, if, if folks want to help out, which we, of course, absolutely advocate and recommend, there's a bunch of ways. Like, there's there's a there's a donation link that you can always send money to, and we'll put that in the show notes. But also, if they're passing through an area near you, like, if you go to their, their media to see, like, when they're going to be there, like, they they are looking for people to just join the march. Not the whole way. I mean, if, if you'd like to, I'm sure I'm, they would love to have people do that. But even if it's just Hell, yeah. in your own city, like... Uh, but, like providing food provide, helping with a support vehicle there 's all sorts of different ways that folks can help out so yeah we, we really encourage if the march is going through and you have you know some time where you might be able to help out, uh, it would be really good because like you know the struggle to free political prisoners is really important because like one of the ways you know we did our whole series on the repressive state apparatus and like one of the big ways that the US secret police the FBI have 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 tried to destroy left movements in the United States is by arresting and putting in jail for incredibly long prison terms all sorts of major leaders, you know, be they Black Panthers, be they, again, members of the American Indian movement, or all sorts of other, like, really inspirational revolutionary figures. I mean, obviously, you you know, you have people like Mumia Abu-Jamal, Matulu Shakur, all sorts of people who have been in jail for, you know, decades purely because they were standing up for their oppressed communities. And so if we're going to be able to build and maintain resilient revolutionary movements, that means standing up for those that have been put in behind bars and fighting until they're freed. And so, That's right. you know, Leonard Peltier is exemplary of this and it's really important that we support this struggle.
2: Absolutely. Well, speaking of supporting, uh, incarcerated or otherwise oppressed people who fight for the working class and other oppressed groups. <laughs> This is your favorite labor podcast we're an entirely listener supported show thank you so much for any money you might be giving us on the patreon if you're not in the discord yet please get in there as soon as you can it's completely free if you are a patron and you don't have stickers yet just message us on patreon and we will get those to you right away and if you want to help the show a little bit more you can leave us a five-star review wherever you think it will help uh As long as we're talking about political repression and political violence, I suppose we'll follow up with the South African shack dwellers movement where we have quite unfortunately seen yet another organizer of their movement assassinated. So we talked about this before, uh, when we discussed, do we have the names of the other people who were shot?
0: Oh, um, uh, Ayanda Nagila was Mm -hmm. the first one that we talked about. I mean, there have been a few of these. It's, it's really tough. Like the this has been a real site of really strong state repression. Mm-hmm. Like cuz I mean, listeners will know that we we've talked about this movement, uh Abalali uh which is, you know, that the name in in their language for the the shack dwellers movement in South Africa who are working to actually try and help the poorest segments of society there try and just build their own sustainable communities and like they're not out there like you know, starting militia to go overthrow the South African government. They're starting small communes where they are having like poultry farms and vegetable gardens and like housing complexes that people can actually live in and be able to grow their own food. And, but that has been seen to be a huge threat to the capitalist elements in power in South Africa. And they've responded to that threat with continued escalating violence and it's really, really tragic that this has once again resulted in the murder of another young organizer.
2: Yeah, it really puts the lie to to the whole kind of uh, myth that if you resist peacefully and you resist in like a, a polite way that doesn't like clog up streets or whatever, like that you won't be met with political violence. It's like right. you absolutely still will if you're effective in any way. And the kind of political violence that we're seeing, I mean, yet another young organizer in the movement was assassinated when 28-year-old uh, Linda Kule Mguni, a chairman of the Ekanana Commune, uh, it, it was killed in his home in Durban. Two assassins broke down his door and riddled Mguni and his wife with bullets, killing him and hospitalizing her. And witnesses say they recognized the assassins from the hit squad that murdered fellow organizer Ayanda Ngila back in March. So it seems like they're not even, like... Trying to go through the precautions of hiring new people or or trying to hide that this is a concerted effort or a concerted campaign of, of violence against these organizers. It seems like it's pretty much right out in the open. Uh, and they have been, the, the attacks have been led by the son and daughter of Simon Ngubane, uh, who is a local leader of the ANC in Durban, who has been trying to get a hold of the land used by the Ekanana commune for sale on the local real estate market, uh, sending frequent, frequent raids by gunmen, which have terrorized the commune for months in an attempt to drive the residents out, including at least three murders of organizers that we know of.
1: Yeah, I was watching, a, uh, an interview with one of the people who was associated with the shack dwellers movement and they were saying that they literally go into these uh these communities almost like daily or at least weekly and just fire guns just to just to like intimidate the the people who are living there
0: yeah it's it's crazy and it's it's one of those things that just shows because this often gets chalked up in a lot of other media to like Oh well this is this is just gang violence in in an area because it's a poor community mm-hmm. but it's like every single one of these has had direct connections to the state and local governments so like it the fact that they're you know attempt to write this off as just like oh it's the poor fighting the poor as a way to cover up for the fact that this is a, a targeted assault on the poorest communities by the richest mm-hmm. in in the area and like and especially because you know the shack dwellers movement is an explicitly socialist movement, and and that's like we you know you can see that just in in the statements like not only just by the explicit orientation of the group but also their actual praxis. It's like they're focused on uplifting the poorest members of society and and actually going out and doing that rather than just you know talking about it. Because like before he was killed, like Maguni himself had made statements about like why they're out there doing the work that they're doing and so in a statement he said quote when you say you're a socialist the problem that you want to solve is the problem of poverty but you can't solve it just by relying on ideas we need action for collective ownership of land when poor people commit themselves to politics they don't commit themselves to mere ideas we join politics because we have problems we want to solve end quote
2: yeah, and, and the movement also said in a statement uh, after Mguni was killed, they said Mguni knew that he had chosen to live and struggle in in the shadow of death. He made it very clear in his calm and gentle way that he had chosen socialism or death, which is like... I mean, especially with the rampant levels of violence we've seen uh, waged by state and capitalist actors in South Africa, not just against the shack dwellers movement, but for instance against unions at places like the clover dairy plants um it, it does seem like like a, a place in the world where the the contradictions and the and the consequences uh, of trying to organize under the the current system are are extremely stark
1: yeah, yeah. Well, and just to outline that, I think that it's at- you know apt to point out here that when it comes to poverty in south africa uh 64 percent of black people in south africa are in poverty compared to one percent of white people and six percent of indian and asian people who also experience poverty but i mean like 64 percent of black people in africa experience poverty like that is very clear you know like discrimination and, and, a and a, a vestige of the former quote unquote apartheid mm-hmm. state. I mean, like it's at least part of it that still exists.
0: Yeah. I mean, cause it's one of those things where like, it, we're not coming out here and saying that like, you know, the, the, the end of apartheid like didn't do anything. It obviously did. It was in like, a like a momentous, you know, campaign by the people of South Africa and the ANC at the time to, to defeat the white supremacist regime and bring, you know, the majority population, the indigenous population of South Africa back into power. But this has also shown that one of the biggest results of the fact that the ANC did not make a break from capitalism when it made that same break from apartheid has left so many of the material results of the apartheid system relatively untouched. Because, you know, the worst... Overt aspects of it tend to be gone. You know, you don't have people with restrictive movement. You don't have all of the overt racism, you know, from, from the, the colonizers that you had under the apartheid regime. But because of the fact that capitalism, as we've talked about so many times, is inherently racist
2: mm-hmm.
0: and inherently looks to divide groups against each other and to keep <laughs> the poor poor and to keep the rich rich. Like, that's its function, So if you maintain that system, even when you have very real, incredible historic victories, like the overturning of apartheid, the remnants of the capitalist system, and especially, you know, now in the neoliberal era, like, that puts a huge restriction on how far you can go in being able to actually, you know, bring people to true liberation. And so... It also, I think, one of the things about this story that really stands out to me is because we hear so much from, you know, liberal propaganda about how, like, oh, socialists and communists, they're so violent, and it's like the USSR murdered a billion people or whatever, you know, all the victims of communism nonsense. and Because there's always this attempt to portray, you know, people who are defending the poor, who are coming out there to oppose the systems of oppression and domination built into capitalism, to portray those people as violent because they want to change the system. But you could not see a starker like example of how much of a lie that is. Because the shack dwellers movement isn't sending gunmen into the rich parts of Durban to just go shoot up neighborhoods they're mm-hmm. helping people set up again vegetable gardens they're helping people who were previously homeless maybe living under a bridge somewhere actually have a place to live it may not you know it's not going to be a, it's not like a swanky luxury condo or something but just having a roof over their heads and that is is being met with horrific violence from the capitalist class and it's just it's i think one of the starkest exposures of that it is in fact capitalism which is inherently violent and it is it is the struggle against poverty and the struggle against oppression that is the only way that we are going to ever overturn that and so like you know all of our all of our solidarity goes out to the shack dwellers movement and like as horrible as these these assassinations, these murders, these constant attacks are, I do think there is still a lot of inspiration we can draw because this sort of thing would crush a lot of lesser movements. And yet, every time we've seen this happen, we hit see the Shack Dwellers movement continue to fight back, to continue to organize, to continue to fight for the people that are in the the poorest conditions and to try and, you know, actually fight for a system that cares about everybody. And I think that that level of discipline, that level of strength is something that we can really draw from in in our, you know, trying to draw inspiration for our own movements.
2: Forward to socialism. forward.
0: Forward. Forward. to communism. Forward. Forward. Abash. Capitalism. Abash
1: absolutely and to move to our next story we're going to be talking about the multi-tiered system that we've covered in minor league and major league baseball Mm -hmm. and one of the solutions that we had initially actually talked about on on the show in regards to the way that you know the the uh, minor league players had their own association. And in most other sports, there was, you know, uh, the minor league, like in hockey, there's the, the the smaller leagues and then the major leagues are all in the same union. While the uh, Major League Baseball Players Association, the union of like the MLB, has actually begun organizing minor league players and has been handing out cards. And as of today, they have seen over 50% of minor league players uh, sign up to join the MLBPA and form a single union rather than two unions. One that you know honestly leaves a lot of the minor league players to you know not have the conditions that allow them to make this uh, this very uh, honestly difficult and occasionally like harmful to people's bodies. Sport, you know, uh, a uh, a career.
2: Yeah, well, and it's not surprising that so much support for for joining this union has been uh, achieved so quickly. Because as we talked about the last time we talked about minor league baseball players, they're expected to do basically just as much training, traveling, and paying for various expenses as major league players. And they're often paid pitifully small wages. I mean, some of them make as low as like the Mm mid-20,000s of dollars per year, which like... (sighs) you can make that without committing yourself heart and soul to an athletic endeavor. And, and they're basically being strung along because a lot of them, you know, will never get a chance to see the major leagues, but it's all, it's, it's kind of assumed that you're supposed to just know when to quit. And, uh, you know, that if, if you're not gonna uh, make it in the minors, then you should just give up. And it's like, no, people come out to watch these folks play sports. Like they should be compensated fairly for their time and their risk of injury. And 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 their training and their travel and everything else that comes with it.
0: Well, yeah. And their labor is the Mm -hmm. only thing that creates the sport that then generates billions and billions in dollars in profits for the owners who don't do any of that labor, who don't go out and put their body on the line and who the fans are not paying to see. So like they're reaping all this money while these minor league players are paid next to nothing, oftentimes forced to do work for like spring training for free and uh, it's, yeah, it's, we, we, so, I mean, we'll, we won't go through the whole thing because we've covered it on past shows, but like, this has been a really, really great thing to see because one, when we've talked about this in the past, one of the things that we've said is major league baseball players have a union and it's one of the stronger unions in sports. Mm-hmm. So why don't they just bring the minor leaguers into that union? Cause the whole idea is like, if you're in the minors, your goal is to get in the majors. So it only makes sense that one union should represent all of them. And it's so good to see that the, the union is finally taking that step. And so like we have a statement here from MLBPA executive director, Tony Clark, who said minor leaguers represent our game's future and deserve wages and working conditions that befit elite athletes who entertain millions of baseball fans nationwide. They're an important part of our fraternity and we want to help them achieve their goals both on and off the field, end quote. And so a big part of how this all came about now is because of several years of advocacy from this group Advocates for Minor Leaguers who we sourced a lot of our you know information from on our past episodes because they've been the ones going out there like bringing in the stories from the minor leaguers and and popularizing them putting them out so people can actually hear like what are the awful conditions that these folks face and putting pressure on the MLBPA, Ted do the right thing as they now finally are. And one of the you know kind of neat things about that is that uh, the advocates for minor leaguers is now shutting down, and not because you know they're like now we don't have a purpose, but because the MLBPA offered staff positions <laughs> to the, oh, the advocates. Oh yeah, there. That's, that's the kind of about. organizing
1: you love to see, where you're just like, oh wow, this group was doing really good advocacy. Uh, well, we better just let them keep doing it, or we could take this bigger
0: organization with more power and just give these people more institutional power. Yeah, I mean, so this it, it's really great news. I mean, like, yeah, as as you said, or, like earlier in the episode, like this was only announced a few days ago, mm-hmm. and they've already hit over half, like over fifty percent, of minor leaguers sending cards back. So it, it's. Very exciting news for the the Major League Baseball and, you know, minor league system, Mm -hmm. and – yeah. I mean, like, it is both though.
1: I mean, because like yes. the, the person is saying, I mean, the minor league players go into the major leagues. That is where the recruiting happens. And without lifting up the minor leagues, you are lang- like leaving people to languish in a multi-tiered system that actually causes more harm and reduces the quality of people's lives. And, and, and if you want, I mean, if they are committed to creating a great sport with a great, you know, environment for the players... They have to talk about all of the players, including the ones that are in training or in these minor league programs. Well, yeah, Absolutely. and I mean, it's
2: it's obvious to the players who are paid pitifully little how much money the people who operate the stadiums and who manage right. the teams and everything are making. I mean, they're in there every day watching every school within 150 fucking miles bus in kids to watch the West Michigan Whitecaps and all run and eat a fucking pretzel between every inning. <laughs> like that's money, hand over fist. Those pretzels are nine and a half dollars. They're probably right. more now. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> yeah,
0: so the the union because they've already got, you know, over half of the minor leaguers have already signed union cards. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the union has now formally requested that Major League Baseball rec- voluntarily recognize the desire of the players in the minors to join Major League Baseball. So uh, we will see how that goes. It's They're one They're just a- for fighting really hard and being
1: really shitty and being like, we'll just c- lock you out. We'll wait. And so, I mean, like, I think there's going to be a fight here.
0: Yeah, I mean, on the other hand, and I mean, we are going into the end of the baseball season. So that I think actually might play a role in here where they might just try and stonewall until like and drag it out until next spring training. But like it is I do think one of the things that helps here is that the MLBPA is one of those unions that has shown. Uh, unlike, say, the NFL union, uh, has shown that they're actually willing to go on strike because there have been plenty of times where there have been, like, you know, owners' attempts to, like, break down free agency mm-hmm. or, or or get rid of guaranteed contracts. And the Players Association have been like, no, that's not happening. So, I mean, they've got a ton of leverage. So, yeah, I mean, while the owners are certainly not going to be excited about this, and we'll probably try and, you know make their own threats against the union drive I, I th- this is exactly why you know we've said for so long that it's like it has to be the major league union doing this because mm-hmm. it would be so much easier for owners to stonewall and lock out a union that's just the minor leaguers. Because they could say like whatever. If we have to have like a lockout in just the minor leagues, we've still got our major league players. That's where the you know the biggest capital B billions are coming from. But when they're all in the same union, and if you lock out the minor leaguers, the major leagues threaten to go on strike. Whew! That's yeah. so much more leverage, right?
1: There. I think that that's well, a really great point.
2: As long as we're comparing union systems with more and less leverage, let's talk about (laughs) a big gain for workers in Mexico. Absolutely. So in another huge win for independent unions in Mexico, 350 workers at an auto parts plant owned by VU Manufacturing, just a few miles from the U.S. border, voted to throw out the old company union and build their own organization. So this is on Wednesday, August 31st, Uh, workers at the plant voted 186 to 101 in favor of joining the Mexican Workers League instead of the CTM. Uh, so this is the, the latest in a series of new independent unions, the Mexican Workers League, uh, similar to SNITES and Cintia that we talked about previously on the show that have been formed to fight decades of company-controlled protection unions and uh, business unions under the corrupt CTM, which is like a, a federation of unions, right? Similar to like, yeah, the AFL. the,
0: the Confederación de Trabajadores de México.
2: Right. So these workers at the VU manufacturing plant in Piedras Negras petitioned for a new union election a few months ago to get out from under the CTM. And recently, the company slashed bonuses for those workers who exceed a daily production quota by 30%. And the CTM refused to do anything about it. The plant also does not have air conditioning, despite temperatures routinely reaching triple digits during the summer months, and leaks in their roof leave pools of water all over the plant floor. I mean, these are the kinds of conditions that even if you just nominally have a union, you would expect you would be able to do something about. So I think that's really a testament to like Uh the failures of the CTM here.
1: Well, and I think that one of the things that really also highlights how the CTM is not for the workers is specifically how the union busting manifested from the company Mm -hmm. itself, where when this vote is coming down that allows the workers to change what union represents them to this independent union from the CTM, the company itself was not saying, no, buck both unions. They were saying, no, stick with the CTM. We really want you to still be in the (laughs) the confederation uh, of, of workers of Mexico and and just like uh so wait if a company's advocating for a union you really really got to got to take into consideration what this is looking at I, we have a, a a quote here from Veronica uh Arkele Rivera uh, who has worked at the uh, uh who for their for her whole adult life who explained uh, this uh, well why why she wanted this independent union saying, I worked in various uh, maquilladores and all of them have had the CTM. I'm convinced the CTM is never going to do anything for the workers. Why? Because the company pays the CTM. It doesn't collect dues from the workers. And I I think that that also, I mean, like all of these things, the company advocating for the CTM, the fact that the CTM doesn't take dues from the workers and instead gets all of their funding from the companies themselves shows the the inherent corruption and class collaborationist elements of the CTM. And and it really exemplifies the need to abolish the CTM as a union. And as we see more of these independent unions in Mexico show up, uh, I think that we're really seeing that fight come come to fruition.
0: Yeah, I mean, just the image of a company holding a captive audience meeting to tell workers to join a different like to 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 stick with the current union is just so strange considering <laughs> like the US context. Uh one thing I really just want to quickly shout out here is like we're getting all this from coverage from Labor Notes and like Labor Notes has been out there at the forefront of this. Like I have barely like There's a little bit of reporting on this in, like, the business press because they care about it because they're like, oh, no, these workers are getting unions that might actually do union stuff. Right. That's not what we want. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, our profit margins. Um, But the people who have actually been going and talking to the workers, it's been, like, as far as English press that I've seen, it's been pretty much just labor notes. So, you know, shout out to them as usual. Uh, But, yeah, like, the company, like (laughs) – Uh, targeted workers who were advocating in the plant for the workers league, you know, the the new union by withholding bonuses from them and even temporarily laying off a hundred workers who they suspected were supporters of the workers league. And, and, you know, so uh, Rivera, who we'd previously quoted from that, that labor notes piece continued saying, we interpreted the layoffs as retaliation. The way it's worked here in Mexico is that the company chooses the union, which is the CTM. And because various workers weren't going along with having a union imposed on them, they laid us off," end quote, and so like it's it's so coming from you know the U.S. labor context, this is just such a wild situation. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the things, and this is why we, you know, why one of the reasons we talk about this struggle so much is that like it's already so difficult. I think a lot of times, like when we see so many struggles here in the U.S., to beat back all the propaganda that you hear from a company about why workers don't need a union, why you'd be better off negotiating directly with the company. The <laughs> union is just going to take your money. You know, all the stupid lies that they throw out there. But then you add that additional scenario of, of a company being like, oh no, we're fine with you having a union. We think you should have a union. It should just be this union. Look at the joy in this union. And so like then having to bust through that sort of propaganda, I think just goes to show like the tenacity of these organizers for these independent unions uh, and and the solidarity that has been shown by so many of these workers willing to stand up and fight for a real union that will actually represent their interests, that will be a union and not a, a fake company union. And and that's the sort of thing that I think we can draw from here, which is why it's been good to see them get support from from unions in the U.S. like the UAW. So I, I think that it's really important that we keep watching this st- these struggles develop because like, there's a lot of, I think, individual tactics and, and, and strategies and, and just, you know, general inspiration that we can draw from the, these independent union movements in Mexico.
2: Absolutely. Well, and Mexico is also just like a really big and important economy that that like takes up a a very prominent space on the world stage. And I think a lot of Americans uh, kind of racistly look down their nose at Mexico and also don't realize like how important what happens in Mexico really is.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah, certainly. And I mean, in additional news outside the U.S. factor, I guess we've been really going uh, with uh, the non-U.S. stories today. We're going to be talking about. Uh, Canadian scaffolding company that is basically saying that well, and they've they've used the court system to to impose this, saying that uh, voluntary overtime and not, and and not doing voluntary overtime is considered a strike because these workers at this at the scaffolding company. Have uh, through a work-to-rule sort of initiative where you know it's quote-unquote voluntary to- voluntary overtime. They have coordinated a where where none of the workers participate in that voluntary overtime, and the company has gone to the court systems, which ruled in favor of the company to say that no, this is a, this is a, a strike. When you know again, this just really th- th- throws the lie to the idea
0: that any of this overtime is voluntary right right yeah i mean this this story is wild like uh, th- like because vice is reporting on this and like we've seen you know court injunctions used against strikes all the time in the us mm-hmm. to, to break down picket lines to say or especially with like a lot of um public workers Government employees where they say, no, 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 you can't have a strike. I mean, obviously, you know, we've talked about the, the way the legal system abuses railway workers here in the U.S. But to say that a bunch of people getting together and not refusing to work, just refusing to do what has been told to them is voluntary overtime, that that's not only against company policy, that it's not only against the union contract, but that it is illegal is just absolutely wild. Like, they, they – so, because, I mean, they're they reporting on this. because These are workers at, at a Canadian construction firm called Aluma Safway uh, who are doing, you know, this work at, a, at an Alberta job site for one of the biggest oil companies in Canada, uh, Suncor. And they were doing this just because they are like, look, the company's not fucking paying us enough, and the working conditions here suck, and yet they want us to do all this voluntary OT. Let's just refuse to do it as a way to be like, look, we're not going to go on strike. We're going to come in and we're going to do a, put in our normal hours. We're going to do our job like a, our 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 contract says we can't go on strike unless you know there's some very specific conditions, so mm-hmm. we can't go on strike. But we're not going to give them extra time as long as they're keep treating us shitty like this. And and yet, and then the the company and the court system come back and say, oh, no, no, you can't do that. You have to work overtime or we're going to throw you in jail. Like, <laughs> this, the, this is one of those things where I just think that it is such an important thing to reflect on the way that the media conditions us to think about the idea of capitalist, quote-unquote, democracy. Mm-hmm. Because we constantly hear about how every country outside of the imperial core is an authoritarian country or whatever. And I'm like, are those countries threatening to throw people in jail for not working voluntary, quote-unquote, overtime? Yeah, and,
2: and the actual ruling is, is, like, it's pretty fucking lame, I gotta say. So the, the actual ruling of the Labor Board was, quote, the board finds the employee's concerted refusal to accept overtime shifts for the purpose of compelling the employer to agree to terms and conditions of employment, which constitutes a refusal to work to be an illegal strike. And it's like... I don't know, yeah, maybe if you're some dusty old Alberta judge with a bunch of snow between <laughs> your ears, that makes fucking sense, but it doesn't make any fucking sense to anyone with uh, more than two brain cells to rub together, well, I gotta say.
1: And I think that uh, your your comparison with railway workers is really apt here, because I think that this, we would not necessarily see this, if this was just uh, you know the scaffolding company was doing maybe a project for, I don't know, affordable housing, or, or something like that, right. but this mm-hmm. is specifically for in oil company and they're basically using similar tactics to what like they've uh ruled against like the uh the warrior met people right when uh when Mm
0: -hmm.
1: when following the ruling aluma safeway sent a letter to the workers threatening legal action for further refusals to work overtime including making workers quote personally liable for added production costs penalties owing to to the owner or even the loss of the contract with our client basically saying that if your work makes us lose money we're going to charge you and again that being very reminiscent of the us's nlrb ruling against warrior met where they were charged to pay for the coal company's unmined coal
2: Yeah, well, I mean, this has been, like, a a trend in in U.S. capitalism for a little while now. Like, you see a lot of companies uh, suing each other or or their workers for lost potential profits that were never realized. And they claim those as losses the same way as if they had lost that same amount of money in, like, inventory or labor time or something. And it's just fucking ridiculous.
0: Yeah, I and so like just to 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 be clear on like some of the like technicalities here like I mean like these workers who are organized under Liuna, you know, the Labor International Laborers International Union Local 506. They like they their contract does have a no strike clause in it. But that's for a strike. <laughs> Like every contract, you know, pretty much in the U.S. has a no strike clause. Like even the IWW's Burgerville contract has Mm -hmm. a no strike clause, Uh, because it's unfortunately nearly as bad as no strike clauses are. You know, we argue against them with the the slogan of this show. (laughs) Uh, They are unfortunately, you know, just kind of a a cost of doing business right now in the status of labor movement. Hopefully, we can fight to rebuild the movement and get away from that. But but the uh, this idea that Vol- refusing to work voluntary overtime counts like that, I think, is one of the things that we have to take away from this. And I think it's really well illustrated because, by the fact that this is, you know, it's not just the company saying this. It's a Canadian court saying this. Is that the idea that capital and the state are separate from each other. Or that companies hate the state and they don't want it to exist. and Because there's this idea, I think some people have this misunderstanding of neoliberalism, that it's the, the, the shrinking of the state. That it's companies taking over and getting rid of the state. No, 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 no. That's not what it is. It's like the, the state has always been integral to the development of capitalism. And neoliberalism is just revving that up. It is an even more direct alignment. Of the capitalist state, in the interest of the capitalist bosses, and and so even though you know, I think I sometimes Americans have this idea that like, oh, Canada is like, it's it's the nicer, friendlier uh, version of the U.S. Where like they've got socialized health care and it's Which easier to don't. have workers' rights. Just right. want to and quick, I, just, I like, just want to
1: quick really point out that they absolutely do not, and their system is
0: consistently
1: being privatized piece by
0: piece. Yeah, but it's it's the thing is it's like even if you think like maybe they don't you know their state doesn't shoot as many people as the U.S. state does. Although, ask the First Nations populations in Canada about that. Mm-hmm. Um, like it, the capitalist state, whether it's the U.S., whether it's Canada, whether it's South Africa, that state is operating in the interests of the capitalist class, and it could not be more clear than in a case like this where you have the threat from the state government to send these workers to jail because they won't work voluntary OT on a program for a, a giant oil company. Well, and in
1: other things that couldn't be more clear, <laughs> the NLRB's button policy has been violated That's... yet again, folks. <laughs> That's and, right. <laughs> and Tesla has been doing its best to make sure that that workers cannot re- represent their support of, of collective activity through union memorabilia and buttons. Uh, which, you know, actually, I did not know this, but I learned through this that Walmart does have an exception for this.
0: Yeah. That was yeah, wild I mean, that's what it, Yeah. Like, I mean, we've talked on the show a few times about, look, the NLRA has some clauses that are murky, and there's been a lot of effort by employers to use the legal system to chip away at some of the places that might be a bit vague, that might leave openings for companies to, to get in there and say, well, what does this really mean? But that button clause, that one's pretty cut and dried. And so I – I think it should come as no surprise that if Tesla, the company which brought us cars that decapitate their own drivers and perhaps the most racist uh, auto factory in the country, at Mm -hmm. least their management, that the way that they would choose to violate labor law would be to violate the most cut and dried provision within it. Um, So what this is all stemming from is... Tesla has a dress code policy that they have basically been abusing to prevent workers from wearing any union insignia. And their reasoning for this was so weird. They said that if workers didn't wear just solid black T-shirts or just, like, a black T-shirt provided by Tesla, it could damage the cars on the line, (laughs) which I— I got to say, I kind of want to see like their filings in this just to see how they explain that. (laughs) Because I'm very curious as an engineer how somebody wearing a black t-shirt that has a union logo on it versus a black t-shirt that doesn't have a union logo on it can somehow... impact the production of a car
2: but they're also allowed to wear tesla branded clothes right so like is tesla using a special secret screen printing process that (laughs) won't damage the cars or are they just quite obviously full of shit you know it's (laughs) this seems like a great time to apply occam's razor
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah which is basically exactly what the nlrb here did right where they came out and said no you can't have a dress code policy like that so nlrb uh, uh chairperson Lauren McFerrin said of the ruling with today's decision, the board reaffirms that any attempt to restrict the wearing of union clothing or insignia is presumptively unlawful. And that word in there presumptively, I think is actually really important Mm -hmm. in this ruling because what that does is that gives workers who are where this policy is violated immediate precedence to be able to say, oh, no, 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 look, there's already a ruling on this. Like, there's no, it's, this isn't vague. There's no question here. Mm-hmm. Like, you cannot have a policy that bans us from wearing pro-union insignia. Like, the only the only thing in there is, like, if there are accommodations for what type of clothing it is. So, like, for instance, like, UPS drivers have, a, like, a uniform. Mm-hmm. And so they can't just wear a shirt that says, like, a Teamster shirt instead of the normal uniform. But they can't ban them from wearing buttons. And that's why we call it the button clause. And so it, it's the same thing here. You, like, they, they were very easily able to rule against Tesla. And so this is really good because you know it overturns an older ruling that allowed Walmart to get around this. And so this can immediately then be used by other workers around the country to stop companies from preventing them from being able to show their solidarity outwardly with their union. Absolutely.
1: Well, and then in our next story, we have got a group of uh, workers organizing with the Teamsters. Workers at Mom's Organic Market in uh, the Hampton neighborhood of Baltimore joined the service retail union wave on Friday, August 26th, where they voted in a landslide 58 to 5 to unionize with the Teamsters.
2: That's really good. And the Teamsters seem like they've really been reaching out to a lot of different sectors of the economy recently, especially like uh, retail service and particularly grocery workers, uh, which has been really cool to see. And it it does also seem like the Teamsters can reliably get these landslide votes at a rate that we only have really seen with Starbucks besides them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, this is, a, this is a, a pretty pretty simple story here. You know, Moms Organic Market is a, a, a small grocery chain around the Mid-Atlantic. They've got 22 grocery stores, largely focused in Maryland. And they previously have done – we've seen this in so many places. They've tried to hold off unionizing by putting their average wages just slightly higher than average in the area <coughs> uh, with starting rates there at $15 an hour. But, of course, as we know – $15 an hour is not a living wage anywhere in the country, right. much less a major city like Baltimore. So workers at Mom's Market reached out to Teamsters Local 570 just a few months ago, actually. That's the other thing I think that's cool about this. this. This drive didn't actually take that long to come together. Um, and they were focused on you know a lot of pretty bread and butter stuff in this case, like better wages, more job security, paid time off. And other benefits. And so, you know, the Teamsters worked with the, the folks who had reached out to them. They, they helped them inoculate their co-workers against employer propaganda. And they went and filed for, you know, their NLRB election at 50 percent union cards in July. And so, yeah, then, yeah, they had this massive landslide win with basically, yeah, over 90 percent of workers voting in favor. And so, you know, we have a quote here from worker Kelly Oppenheimer at the store who said, when you also hear that your coworkers are struggling to pay rent or worried about their job security and maybe figure out their manager didn't like them as much and they got passed up for a raise, it kind of hurts being more secure in paying my rent and paying my bills will take a load off. And so, yeah, I mean, it just really gets to it. Cause it's like, it's a lot of these fights have, you know, very specific angles, but it, a lot of it, it just comes down to that fact that it's like, in addition to all of the material problems of of not being able to pay your bills, of having to skip meals, which are, you know, of course, horrific. Like the, the toll of anxiety that not having a secure job with a good wage puts on you is huge. And so it's a huge load off to have something like this. And so, you know, hats off to these workers. The Teamsters are going to be start holding meetings with the workers immediately to find out what their main priorities are and then move forward to to bargain for that first contract. So very exciting and key, you know, this is a chain so I really hope that this is not the the only one of these and I would imagine that some more of those 22 locations will will be popping up uh here with union elections probably pretty shortly.
1: Absolutely with that landslide victory I think that we can be kind of hopeful about that. Uh but to move to our next uh actually kind of two stories we're going to be talking about the healthcare industry where nursing home workers uh have begun uh the return of kind of sector-wide bargaining, uh, which we usually only see in, uh, like, the building trades or in, in, you know, steel and auto manufacturing. But uh, about six weeks ago on July 12th and 13th, over a 1,000 workers in nine nursing homes in, up- in upstate New York held simultaneous strikes. Uh, this is the first for them. And uh there's organized by 1199 SEIU, one of the best
0: SEIU locals that exist. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, this is really cool. This is another great story out of labor notes. Um, And that that's the, the sectoral bargaining angle of this is what I think is really interesting because, you know, this is nine different nursing homes, which I believe have six different owners. So a couple of them are under like one owner, but this is mostly pretty disparate businesses, but they're all facing very similar conditions that we've seen people face across healthcare, poverty wages And intentional short staffing to maximize the profits of the ownership. And so since they all have disparate employers, but they all have the same union. Again, here, 1199 SEIU, these workers, most of whom are paid just barely over $13 an hour and are required to do the work of multiple people at these homes, came together and said, hey, you know, we could strike individually and it might get us something. But what if we all struck at the same time? Uh, and and so, like, these workers, are they're demanding $15 an hour as the minimum starting wage to go up from there to have higher wage scales for veteran workers and for the company to provide additional staff so that they're not so overworked that they can't provide care that the patients really need. Sure. And And I think one of the things to really emphasize about specifically this nursing home issue is that, like, and of course, you know, listen to check out the death panel for all of the really uh mm-hmm. like in-depth problems with like, you know, the the sort of carceral setup that we have for treating so many of our elders like with these nursing homes. But I mean, even when we look into just the recent issues, these have been the sites of the biggest concentration of COVID deaths. And not just with the like patients, but also with the staff. Like nearly 20% of the COVID deaths in this country, over 200,000 people have been in nursing homes or nursing home staff. Like, it's, it, is a, it is a number that is difficult to comprehend. And yet, in response, have we seen, like, national outrage, a nationalization of this system, maybe a reckoning with the concept of nursing homes in general, and that perhaps we shouldn't just warehouse our elders until they pass away, and that we should actually treat them with respect and dignity that they deserve, uh, or at the very least, provide the staff the pay, benefits, and working conditions that they need to make these places a much better spot for folks to you know, live out the remainder of their days? No, we haven't seen any of that. Instead, we've seen the private nursing home operators that run these facilities following the same logic of capital that we've seen so many other places follow. Instead of hiring more staff, instead of installing new ventilation, providing better wages and conditions, they've done the opposite. They've yeah. refused to hire staff while increasing enrollment. And so... Like there's been really no other option but, but to strike for these workers,
2: and in in fact these these business owners have coordinated with one another in order to strategically mm, yes. not meet the workers' demands. I mean, uh, there were there were nine facilities that went on strike, but there were three other ones that actually did cave to the workers' demands before they even right. went on strike. And I think that that shows like how powerful it is when you get all of these workers together and have them go at the same time. Because you know, price fixing is illegal, but for some reason, price fixing the cost of your laborers wages doesn't seem to be illegal or if it is it's like seldom to never enforced and so uh, when when the unions uh did propose a potential strike 98.6 of them voted in favor of it and then when they unified and put the pressure on the companies despite all of that there still has not been a final deal reached to solve the problems at these facilities so the workers are clearly committed to continuing their struggle even if it includes more and longer strikes uh, which I have to guess will probably work just judging from the fact that three of the facilities (laughs) caved before they even went on the first one and uh, as Rebecca Pettis who is a cook and one of the bargaining committee members told Labor Notes quote we will fight as long as everybody wants to and if they want the outcome of better wages that's what we have to do keep fighting and I have to to imagine if 98.6 percent of them <laughs> voted in favor of the strike they probably will keep fighting pretty fucking hard
1: well yeah Absolutely. and i think that one of the things to highlight here is with even with those companies going like conceding and you know giving uh the workers what they demand they still go on strike because then that still puts pressure on the sector I think right. that that sure. is yeah. is really really important to to though you got your needs or your demands met even in part uh, that does not mean that the strike is off that means that you have been winning and that you can win more.
2: Yeah, well, and it's it's especially important with like medical related services uh, because I think a lot of people think sector wide stuff has to be a whole state or the whole country or it's not going to work. But proximity of medical facilities to one another that provide the same services is really important. And if you have nine that are near each other uh, that don't have staff on the same days, I mean, you really do develop a lot of regional leverage with that.
1: Absolutely. Well, and in the thought of creating leverage, mm-hmm. Minnesota nurse, the Minnesota Nurses Association has announced that 15,000 nurses throughout the state plan to go on strike for three days on September 12th. Uh, after a vote last month, when the nurses overwhelmingly supported the authorization of the potential walkout, uh, the strike is set to impact 16 hospitals across the state. This is going to—you uh, uh, know, I mean, when it comes to labor history, uh, you know, we have a lot of stuff written down, but also, you know, the data's not always easy to parse. But it's, pers- it's kind of believed that this is going to be the largest private sector nurses' strike in U.S. history.
0: Yeah, I mean— 15,000 nurses. That is huge. Uh, I mean, it's incredible, but it it only makes sense. I mean, how many times have, how many stories have we covered on this show about the way the healthcare workers, nurses, uh, every, I mean, the hospital staff, everybody has been treated during this pandemic. It's, uh, it's. It's honestly incredible that, you know, the entire healthcare system hasn't completely collapsed, like, considering how awful these folks are treated. Like, mm-hmm. and, and this also, again, and despite the way the media always portrays nurses' strikes, this is not, you know, some hasty decision. They have been negotiating without a contract for almost six months and only now are taking this step. And again, they authorized this weeks ago. So they've given the ownership of these hospitals tons of time to come to the table and have made it more than clear. It's like, we're serious about this, but like we'll negotiate, but you have to, come and actually negotiate with us. Mm -hmm. And yet still, you know, we see how far they are apart when we look into, you know, the issues that they're negotiating over. Like uh, per the reporting from CBS, like nurses are aiming for a 30% wage increase over the course of a three-year contract to help address current low wages that they're facing and also deal with the, you know, massive inflation that we're we're seeing right now. And I know that 30% might seem huge to some people, but when you've had years of stagnant wages and when you're facing conditions like this where you know this is a job where you are going in and maybe you might not come home cuz that's the th- I, I don't think people really like sometimes appreciate how dangerous being a healthcare worker can really be so combine that with the current level of inflation combine that with the massive level of burnout faced by so many workers I, combine that with the way that hospitals are trying to get around this by replacing nur- nurses with travel nurses just exacerbating all of these problems and making them worse like i that thirty percent sounds completely reasonable, I think to me, and yet the offer we get from the hospitals organizing together is what if we give you an eleven percent raise? Look how huge that is over and again, this is over a thir- a three year contract, so it's not like an immediate thirty percent or immediate eleven percent raise it's spread over three years, so like that eleven percent that the hospitals are offering that would barely cover this year's inflation, yeah so who knows how much it's going to be next year and the year after. And it's already, the, the whole thing's been eaten up in the first year. And the hospitals are like declaring that what the nurses are asking for is unreasonable
2: yeah well and i mean they're also the the hospitals are also fighting tooth and nail to make sure that they don't have to hire anybody else which is another core issue that the nurses are trying to get solved which is that like a huge part of the reason this is so dangerous and a huge part of the reason there are much worse health outcomes for their patients than there need to be is because hospitals which are one of the most disastrous places to implement like lean style uh business management have adopted surprise surprise lean style business management and and and, and, all the just in time and, and all of the other, uh, hyper-capitalist bullshit that, that makes every other industry paper thin and to have, uh, you know, paper thin supports in a healthcare environment, it's just wildly irresponsible. I mean, you don't even need to be a socialist to realize that, but I think it, it probably does help. Um, So the Minnesota reformer also noted that a recent report from the Minnesota Department of Health shows adverse health effects were up 33 percent in 2021 from 2020 and last year. Uh, Nurses filed nearly 8000 reports of unsafe staffing levels, which is an increase of 300 percent from 2014. ER wait times. So so that can't possibly just be covid like from 2014. That's got that's just labor intensification in many respects leading up to the last few years. ER wait times have hit highs of over 14 hours for some patients. Meanwhile, hospital CEOs rake in multimillion-dollar salaries. Um, and you have uh, Chris Rubesh, who is an RN at Essentia in Duluth and first vice president of the Minnesota Nurses Association, saying, quote, Corporate healthcare care policies in our hospitals have left nurses understaffed and overworked. While patients are overcharged, local hospitals and services are closed, and executives take home million-dollar paychecks. Nurses have one priority in our hospitals, to take care of our patients, and we are determined to fight for fair contracts so nurses can stay at the bedside to provide the quality care our patients deserve. And, I mean, that's just something we talk about all the time on this show, especially when it comes to industries... Like healthcare and education, which it hurts me, it pains me to even refer to as industries. Those should just be public (laughs) services, for God's sake.
0: Yeah, and so like, so they'll be on strike from the twelfth, the thirteenth, and the fourteenth. So if you're in Minnesota, I mean, this is going to be all over the state. Mm -hmm. Like, there's multiple hospitals in Minneapolis. Uh, So like, if you have the opportunity to, to, if there's a picket line near you, we certainly recommend, you know, you if you have a chance. And you can go down and show your solidarity, show that you stand with those nurses to help, you know, not just them, but all of us. Because <laughs> that's the thing. Uh, like COVID is still a huge fucking problem. Mm-hmm. 40,000 people have died in the United States of COVID in the last hundred days. And a not insignificant part of that, those numbers, is not just the complete abdica- like, abdication of any attempts to stop the spread of COVID. It's also because nurses are run so thin By exactly what you're saying, this application of lean processes – to hospitals that they can't provide the care that they want to because you have one nurse who's now doing the job of what in say even just a few years ago would have been two, three, four nurses. So yeah, like this affects all of us. And it's r- so important that we support, you know, these nurses and all the healthcare workers in these yeah. efforts. Well,
1: and I could hear you hesitating. You almost said lean manufacturing because like that <laughs> yeah. really that really feels like what is being is happening here in these these health facilities, which, you know, I mean, similar to the, the retirement facilities can be used to warehouse people and we know that it's basically just Mm -hmm. a mechanical device meant to you know gather profits at the expense of all of the people involved who are not the ruling class
0: yeah a hundred percent so yeah shouts out to these nurses
1: absolutely and to move to some You know, I mean, presumably good news. I mean, it is good news. Uh, Amazon's challenges to the ALU's victory at JFK 8 have been thrown out by the Arizona Region 28 uh, NLRB office, uh, where Amazon said there was undue influence be- from the NLRB itself and from the ALU. This was like the the weed smoking and all the other bullshit right. like, like claims yeah, that-, that they yeah. had. Um, and so even though they have made this really ridiculous claim that then made the case itself be moved out of the New- the New York NLRB region to this Phoenix, Arizona region, even that... A more conservative board uh, has ruled in favor of the Amazon Labor Union and the workers there that have unionized, though... I think that one of the things that we need to temper this with is the fact that there are still uh, until the sixteenth of this month objections able to be filed by Amazon, and it's very likely that Amazon will contest the NLRB's ruling on this to then bring it to the court system. And so we know how we feel about the courts, but you know sometimes when the NLRB has already ruled on something, it does give a little bit of sway to the courts. You know, we'll we'll have to see.
0: Yeah, it. I sat through. A few, not, not even a majority of those, like, because uh, they did this all over Zoom, mm-hmm. uh, these virtual hearings. And because it's a public, it's the NLRB, it's open to the, to the general public to watch. And the stuff that, that Amazon was raising as objections were completely nonsensical. Like, n- you could tell just from sitting through it that no, like, the NLRB, nobody bought it. It was just completely ludicrous. But that's the thing that's so frustrating about this is that Amazon's got all the time in the world. Mm-hmm. to just waste everybody's like time and throw ton- infinite their infinite monetary resources at a million lawyers that throw all these challenges. So I I'm I'm sure they will challenge it, but this is still big. Like as you said Lena, like it's not that this like we're not trying to say this doesn't matter. This is this is a really big ruling and so hopefully, you know, this is uh, at least a sign that we're not going to see any more any real chance of victory here and so like we have a quote from chris smalls in response to this just saying after dealing with all that virtual court it feels good to finally have some celebratory news we're hoping that the nlrb certifies it so we can get some rights in the building and protect workers in the building end quote so
1: absolutely hell yeah and then we kind of, at the end of every episode, we've been doing these Starbucks uh, segments, but I've actually kind of want to do a little bit of this ALU-Starbucks crossover in regards to Labor Day, which happened yesterday, Monday the 5th. Uh, Two
0: great tastes that taste great together. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely, where the ALU and Starbucks Workers United held a joint rally and marched well and rallied outside of howard Schultz's 40 million dollar penthouse and then marched from that penthouse to jeff bezos's penthouse with uh (laughs) shouting all sorts of slogans like fuck howard schultz and fuck (laughs) jeff bezos and and i it was really really cool there was also this one cool video that came out of it where there's actually an amazon delivery person walking past the rally and uh you know chris smalls is like oh man we got to get you a union card and you know. uh, it was re- really a good a good thing, and those videos are are very heartening to see.
0: Yeah, the footage from that rally was really cool because, like, in addition, you know, to see that joint solidarity movement between the ALU and, and Starbucks Workers United, there were so many other like representatives of so many of these other movements. Like, uh, I know, like one of the 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 like main organizers for the the Amazon Union Drive down in Bessemer was mm-hmm. there at that rally. There were I. I I, there was a whole bunch of other ones. It was it was just really cool to see that, you know, Labor Day coming together because that's one of the things we talk about so much is like the need for labor unity, not to have like the all the struggles of the different labor unions like individualized and separated apart. And so seeing workers come together around that is just really awesome. And so like in that vein, you know, this weekend, this week was a little slow in terms of uh, elections for Starbucks Workers United, but it was not slow in terms of actions because, you know, we had – it's Labor Day weekend. So, you know, uh, you got an insurgent labor movement. you got to do something big for Labor Day weekend. And so we've talked, I think, before in the past about one of the tactics that Starbucks has been using to do community – or Starbucks Workers United, uh, excuse me, has been doing for community outreach for support for their union drives has been what they've been calling sip-ins where, you know, people come in and they either get a water or something really cheap and then leave a big tip and show to show that like, Hey, we support your union. We're going to come in, we're going to order something under the name union strong or whatever. And and just to show the workers, they're like, Hey, no matter what your, your managers are telling you, no matter what, like sort of oppressive measures they're taking, like the community has your back, but, For this weekend, rather than, you know, having there be one here and one there, the the union movement held over a hundred sip-ins across the country for this weekend to show, you know, big nationwide support for the union and alongside, you know, strikes, rallies, all sorts of other events like and one of the things that I think has been so good to see about a lot of the energy coming out of, you know, these new union movements, including Starbucks Workers United, is this acknowledgement that, like, labor has to be involved in all of the struggles of the working class. Like, you know, one of the things that we hammer on so much here, like, because there was a quote, like, about the Sippins from a, an interview with In These Times where Tyler Daguerre, who's an organizer in Boston, said – about the need for unions to do that saying so long as we're upholding one system of oppression, we're therefore justifying our own. So it really needs to be a collective movement of intersectional solidarity. Hell yeah. Yeah, I've been actually seeing
1: like in interviews with Starbucks workers that the class consciousness is really blooming. Like, I think that you know there was always a little bit there. I mean, being a worker does lend itself to to having a little bit of class consciousness, but a lot of these worker leaders that are coming out of the Starbucks Workers United movement are speaking the language of socialism. They're 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 straight up talking about worker struggle and class struggle, and it's truly a beautiful thing to see.
0: Yeah, and. So we did have uh, one really interesting announcement over the past few days. So we knew that when Howard Schultz came back to be CEO that he was going to be like – the interim CEO. Mm. Well, now they've they've hired a new one. Um, and Howard Schultz has announced that he will be stepping down next year. Hopefully after, I mean, de- depending on if we see any legal challenges to the ruling from last week, hopefully after being forced to deliver a video <laughs> explaining why workers' rights are something that he's not allowed to violate. <laughs> I
2: can't wait. That's going to be one of the weirdest videos I've ever seen in my life because you know he's going to, it's going to you know, be damning I, with faint praise as much as he can get away way with it you know i just
1: just, literally when i picture what it's gonna be is i picture that image of jordan peterson crying
0: in front of the (laughs) camera (laughs) yeah absolutely now it's now now, but now it's just gonna be like howard schultz with kermit voice (laughs) (laughs) but um unfortunately you know all the, the news isn't all fantastic Uh, Starbucks has continued, despite the fact that there have now been multiple court rulings telling them they can't do this shit. Uh, like, because we talked about, you know, the ruling that said that they have to rehire the Memphis seven. Well, they've gone out and fired a bunch of more organizers. Uh, they fired six organizers in Anderson, South Carolina on September 2nd. They've they've fired these workers for the horrible crime of after they had a three day strike. Again, to be clear, Starbucks is very much saying they're not firing these workers for holding a three day strike. It's for after the three-day strike, going to the store and cleaning the store and prepping it to be open after the strike.
2: Wow, how could they do such a thing? Uh, <laughs> I, I need, I need the clip of that of that British guy going. I can't believe you've done this. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you've done this.
0: Yeah. So, I, I mean, it's it's horrible. I, so there is a there's a, a support fund for these workers that we will put. In the description, and of course, as always with these, like uh, you know, if any any support that we can provide these workers is important mm-hmm. because we have to show that, like, look, Starbucks can do all this shit outside the law, but as as workers, as members of the same class, we're going to come together and support each other and keep these sorts of actions from being able to have the demobilizing effect that they want.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's been so many different funds for all of these fired workers and all of these new organizing drives. I think uh, one of the things I'm going to do in uh, later today is actually literally create a, a Solidarity Fund channel in the Discord because they mm, yeah, get a little a buried sometimes in the Worker News channel because they, the Worker News channel is so busy in our server. So so just to, to make sure people can access that a little bit faster if you happen to be in the Discord. but back to what dan was saying at the beginning of this with uh are not being i w- couldn't really find if there were election counts that were held this week it seemed like maybe this was just a lull in in, in the work in the uh ratification counts but at the very least we did see more stores filing including one store in boston which filed with a hundred percent of workers signing cards which Woo. is a very
0: very cool thing
2: way to go boston
0: yeah, I mean that rules. And and yeah, we, so we are as far as as we are aware, we are still at 235 unionized stores. And honestly, considering that's 235 stores that have unionized in a like less than a year, I think they can have a week off and still be uh, yeah, pretty incredible. Yeah, have Absolutely. a sit down. My goodness. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Let's move to, again, our normal weekly segment at the end of the show, the end end of the show, not just the end of the news portion of the show, the meme review, where bow, bow, I bow, have – we're actually doing a, a meme that I did an edit of uh, that I really liked, and so I wanted to bring my own meme in here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> this is – I think this is from Pillars of Eternity. It's either um, that
1: or it's uh, the – oh, shit. I just had it in my head. Uh it's one of those like isometric RPG Dungeons and Dragons style games where you know you move the characters around and this is in a dungeon and there's a giant gold pile but it's labeled empty
0: yeah, so this is one of those quirks of those isometric RPGs where you can interact with the environment, but you don't actually see any visual change when mm-hmm. you like take something out of it. So there's this massive pile of gold, but it's just labeled gold pile, parentheses, empty. And so Lena's put this caption on it here, which I think is very appropriate, just labeled Company's explaining why you have to take a pay cut.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's something we see every single fucking episode of this show where we're like, uh, the company has complained that nobody wants to work anymore and that it's too expensive to pay their workers $12 an hour. The CEO made $62 bajillion this year.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like with the Royal Mail thing we were talking about mm-hmm. last week, we're like, we we have to, we can't give people raises. We have to be competitive. We might have to break up the company. And then they're like, you made 400 million pounds in profit this right.
2: month. <laughs> Well, oh, speaking of man. somebody who should be paid 400 million pounds uh, <laughs> per annum, we have an a, a, a image here of a very good dog who is watching over a, a whole litter of very small kittens. And it just says, when you lie on your resume, but still get the job. <laughs> 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 I have a feeling this pup's going to do a great job. <laughs>
0: I mean that's the thing, uh, like you know they tell you oh you you gotta be truthful on your resume because what if you get the job and you can't do it and like well you know honestly that's why you uh, should invest in some training yeah for real because <laughs> like whatever your resume says every job's different and it looks like this dog who you wouldn't expect to be able to take care of these cats seems to be doing just fine so. Absolutely. And your resume is not as important. Yeah, my resume just
2: things. says, my name's John. I can learn how to do anything in one day. <laughs> 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 Experience, <laughs> see above. <laughs>
0: Hell yeah.
1: Yeah, and then this other one is a meme that was going around uh, on Labor Day uh, where I don't know who this is, probably actor it, guy is.
0: Yeah, yeah. This is, so this is
1: Daniel Craig. This is a picture from when he was SNL. hosting Bond. SNL right and it just says caption unions in 1932 and he's reading uh it says ladies and gentlemen the weekend which i'm guessing (laughs) which i'm guessing uh is actually a reference to the band or the or the 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 performer the the performer the canadian
2: uh uh, 80s revival artist the (laughs) weekend
1: yeah but uh yeah it's it's very good absolutely there's a and whole then, Twitter yeah. account
2: that's just... I think it's called something like SNL hosts introducing the musical act. And they have them from all the different decades that SNL has run. And some of them are really funny. Like, uh, just comedians and actors that you can tell are not familiar with or definitely not into the, the act that they're inter- introducing. Very good shit.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's like when they have, like, Alec Baldwin on there for the 20th time. Yeah, And he's, he's just like, ladies and gentlemen... LMFAO. Yeah, or like
2: Christopher Walken, <laughs> like "Ladies and Gentlemen, the Arctic Monkeys."
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man, so we've got uh, another very much like Labor Day specific meme from you know favorite meme page of the show, Cats with Hard Hats. Hell yeah. We've got you know your typical cat in a hard hat sitting there next to a, a an antique era truck out by a farm. And it's just captioned, happy Labor Day, never work again.
2: <laughs> Ooh, uh,
0: this cat's that's got the right nice. idea.
2: You know, I finally have a job where I have things like Labor Day off. And I was sitting around the house yesterday thinking to myself... Monday should just be part of the weekend at this point, just permanently. Right? And we should move things like Labor Day to Tuesday. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, cuz that's the thing, people are like, how do we deal with unemployment? I'm like, reduce the work week length. Yeah. <laughs> Immediately. Yeah. There you go. Unemployment solved. <laughs> like yeah, but they definitely love this sentiment from the our our favorite uh, hardworking cats. Well, and right. another
1: thing we love is polling sentiment. You know, when they when whenever we see a poll online, that's the kind of thing that makes it into every single show. Which is exactly why it's in every single show, and not the one of the first times we've ever.
0: Uh, brought a polling
1: (laughs) sentiment into I want to see
0: a serious outlet do this to an actual poll. Like, just use a graphic that looks like
1: this. I mean, (laughs) what
2: was it? Uh, Andrew Yang... Uh, tweeted a a, a a bar graph to express percentages pretty recently. Uh, <laughs> that had my head fucking spinning.
1: <laughs> oh, my gosh. What ter- Terrible. I don't want to get into that. <laughs> what a fucking All right, idiot. So this, yeah. <laughs> this, this is uh, uh, a chart labeled dopamine released by various activities. Baseline is 100%. Food, slightly higher. Video games, slightly higher. Sex, just slightly higher than video games, cocaine like one one and a half times that of of sex, like or two two and a half times that of sex. Then, uh amphetamines, which I thought cocaine was an amphetamine, but nope. anyway, that no,
2: just similar no. effects. Yeah, it's a stimulant, but no uh, an amphetamine. Okay.
1: Anyway, that's even that's like twice as high as cocaine, methamphetamine higher than that, and then winning a union, it's just this line that's, co- that's coiling around the whole bottom of this graphic <laughs> as the line is seriously one, two, three, four, five, and then extending off the page times as long as every other line, and it's very it, true. If you ever want a union, that is how it feels.
2: It's also the, the first thing on this list that's not going to have adverse effects on your life or your body since <laughs> sex <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's <that's> true. <laughs> yeah, I mean really that's the thing, you know, uh I, I, I mean not to get like not to take have the serious take during the meme review, but like genuinely there are very few highs as good as actual solidarity in practice absolutely we've got that wholesome
1: content to wrap up the episode
2: that's right i mean what else feels that good uh realizing you're dreaming and then you can control the dream and win a union in your dream i guess (laughs) (laughs) it all comes back around
1: (laughs) Yeah, there we go. We did it, folks. And with that, we want to thank you for listening. If you want to support us, you can support us at patreon.com slash workstoppage. We are entirely listener-supported, so that contribution helps us do this show. And if you want to hang out with us or any of the other comrades that are listening to the show and and supporting other workers, you can jump in the Discord. There is a link to the Discord in the description right next to all of those solidarity funds. You can leave us a review somewhere. You can follow John on Twitter. Twitter at Facebook villain, follow the pod at Work Stoppage Pod, listen to Beep Beep Lettuce, listen to Red Game Table, and as always, labor peace is not in our interest and solidarity forever.
2: That's right, solidarity.
1: Solidarity, everybody.